All right, good morning. Glad you guys made the trek here. I am delighted to be able to preach God's word to you this morning. My name is Stuart McRae. I have the joy of serving on staff here as a pastor. And if you are a guest here this morning, maybe you're joining us online, thank you for being here with us. We actually this morning are starting a new four-week sermon series on the theme of exile. The Bible speaks quite a bit about exile and the Christian's identity as in exile. And so this morning I'm going to introduce that theme and then we're going to preach through a particular passage so we can see some application of that to our everyday lives. Maybe the most all-encompassing way of expressing our Christian identity is in Christ. It's certainly not the only way to do it. Here's, here's three. We've got justified, adopted, forgiven. I'm sure you can think of other ways in which Christians are identified in Scripture in the Bible, Christians are also identified as sojourners and exiles and citizens of heaven. To be in exile is to live not in one's homeland, but to live in a foreign land. Now, to appreciate why Christians are called exiles, we need to do we need to do some history. When most of us think exile in the Bible, we probably think Babylonian exile. Where the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel and expelled them out of their land, banishing them to Babylon. Now, the Babylonian Empire, uh, uh, exile might be what we think of most when we think of exile, but it's not the first exile in the Bible, and arguably, it's not the most fundamental. For that, we need to go back to the beginning pages of Genesis. In the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve were in God's place with God's presence. God tells them to trust and obey him, but they don't. And because of their sin, God exiles them from the garden, away from his presence. Now, because of inherited sin nature from Adam and Eve, indeed, all humanity is exiled away from the presence of God. You see, listen, this is important. The, the, the judgment of exile is first and foremost the banishment away from God's presence. Now, the hope for restoration for a return was not lost. In Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a child of Eve who would come to crush Satan and restore God's people to his presence. But by the end of Genesis 3, beginning of Genesis chapter 4, this, this identity of exile begins. So you see, one of the ways that we can explain the biblical storyline as one of restoration to the presence of God. Let's consider that quickly here. After the garden exile, we're introduced to a man named Abraham, whom God promises to give a people, a place, blessings, and his presence. Mentioning three of these, God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, 8, and to you and your future offspring, the promised people, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, a promised place, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God, the promise of his presence. Now, fast forward to Deuteronomy. This is the fifth book in the Bible. God's people are about to enter into the promised land, but before they do, Moses reminds them of their history, the law, and the blessings for obedience 
and the curses for disobedience. Let me read you one of the curses for disobedience. This is Deuteronomy 28, 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Now, after reminding them of the covenant and the terms of the covenant, the, the blessings and the cursings, the covenant is renewed. All right, fast forward. Again, God's people have now entered into the promised land. They've taken possession of the land, which is described like Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey and with lush vegetation. What's more, the permanent temple is built. Previously, it was a movable temporary tabernacle. The temple is where God's presence resides with his people. Now, the land isn't quite Eden restored, but it's close. Sadly, they quickly fall into disobedience and the promise of exile occurs. God uses the Babylonian empire to exile them out of the land. And what's more, the temple is also destroyed. Like Eden all over again, they are exiled away from the presence of God. Fast forward again, the Persians overthrow the Babylonian empire and they allow God's people to start going back to the land. That said, this is not the return that they had hoped for. Most don't return. Worse, those who remain sinfully adopted the, the, the cultures and practices of their pagan neighbors. For those who do return, they find themselves under the yoke of the Persian empire. The land isn't theirs. And what's more, the sin that truly caused their exile remains. Now, the temple is rebuilt, but it pales in comparison to the original. At the sight of it, the elders weep because of its insufficient nature. And since rampant, unrepentant sin remains, what mattered most, God's presence never returns. The hope of the prophets for a full restoration from exile isn't realized. Now, God's people are still waiting for God to fill, fulfill his promise of sending the one, the child of Eve, who would end their exile and restore them back to the presence of God. But one, one by one, they realize it isn't going to be Abraham. It isn't going to be his sons. It isn't going to be Judah, nor David, nor Solomon, nor any of their kings. But God is faithful to his promises, so hope remained. Fast forward again. A son of David a son of Abraham, a son of Adam, is born. Jesus is born. John tells us that the word who created the world became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt amongst his people. Jesus is the embodiment of God's presence among his people because Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is the very Messiah whom God says in Isaiah that he would send to proclaim liberty to the captives in exile and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, in Jesus' life and ministry, the end of exile was inaugurated. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, the sin that led to the exile away from God's presence was once and for all decisively dealt with. On the cross, 
Because on the cross, Jesus went into exile for us by taking on God's wrath for our sins. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was banished from the presence of God so that by faith in Jesus, our exile from the presence of God would end. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ has restored us to the presence of God so much so that through the Holy Spirit, God makes his home within us now. Paul calls Christians the temple of the living God. Now, our exile is over in an already and not yet sense. And I think just even intuitively, we probably get this. But by faith in Jesus, we are already restored to God. He lives within us. We are already legal citizens of heaven, but not yet do we actually physically uh, live with him in heaven. We get this intuitively. Already the power of sin is broken, but not yet has its presence been removed. The New Testament authors got this. That's why they identify Christians as sojourners and exiles. And this tension will remain until Christ returns, defeats all of his enemies, and then ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Then God and his people will be fully and finally restored to one another. But until that day, disciples of Jesus live here in that already and not yet tension as exiles in a foreign land. This brings us to the impulse for this four-week sermon series. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a sojourner in exile. You are a citizen of heaven. And, and, and those spiritual truths have implications for how you and I ought to live now here in a foreign land. Turn with me to 1 Peter. There was the overview. Now we're going to look at a particular passage and apply this theme to others. If you go to 1 Peter, towards the back of your Bibles, after uh, Hebrews, after James, you'll find 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, first two verses. And heads up, we're actually going to stick in 1 Peter next week as well. We'll do chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. But this morning, chapter 1, first two verses. I'll read verse one, and as I do, I'm going to pause here and there for, for comments. And then once we get through verse one, we're going to sit down more on verse two, because there we're going to find this main point, which is Peter provides us three truths about our God-given elect identity that should encourage us while we are exiles here away from our home. All right, here we go. Verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote this letter. We know him to be a disciple of Jesus, and he describes himself in chapter 5 as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What's more, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This means that he was, he was an official sent messenger by Jesus who, who had the unique authority to speak and write God's words. Back to the text to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
Peter describes the recipients as elect exiles. Elect simply means chosen. Here it is applied to individuals, and so it means God's chosen ones. We've already talked a bit about exile, but these people are also described as of a part of the dispersion, or maybe your translation says scattered. The Greek term here is primarily applied to Jews who lived outside of Palestine ever since the Babylonian exile. But what's interesting is that Peter here is applying it to what is mostly a Gentile audience. Now, ordinarily, we think of being exiled as a judgment for wrongdoing, right? Adam, Eve, we talked about Israel. But in the New Testament, in our text even, being in exile is a result, being in exile is a result of having been elected, chosen by God. It's really interesting. Peter describes Gentiles in what is, in what are historically Jewish identifications. Exiles of the dispersion elect the chosen of God. See, Peter is claiming that they were the people of God who, by faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, joined with believing Jews in the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peter opens his letter by calling them elect exiles. Then throughout the letter, he will call them the same or remind them of their exilic situation. And at the close of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, he sends a greeting from Babylon. Now, this is really just Rome. But here's the point. Peter wants these people to unequivocally recognize and appreciate their exilic status and situation. He doesn't want them to miss it. And what's, what's really instructive here is that most of these people are actually in their earthly native lands. And so in that sense, they're not foreigners. But spiritually speaking, they are exiles in their own land. Because of God's election, they're truly citizens of heaven. And so it is with us. In many ways, we are blessed to live in America and for most of us to call ourselves earthly citizens of this country. But as God's elect, we are citizens of a better country. The temptation of America with its comforts and ease is to make ourselves at home in a place where we are exiles. We need the same jarring reminder that we're exiles in our own land. Don't get comfortable here. And see, just like the Israelites in Babylon, we're in a tempting situation to sinfully become like our pagan neighbors, like the pagan culture around us. But we are elect exiles. What an odd pairing of terms. Selected, rejected. Selected, rejected. But it's true, isn't it? 
By means of God's sovereign, gracious choice, he has elected us. And in so doing, Jesus tells us that the world will reject us. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Thomas Schreiner helps when he wrote, those who understand themselves as God's elect have the ammunition to resist the norms and culture of the society they inhabit. Divine election reminds the readers that they have status, not because they are so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed his grace upon them. And in so doing, we have the, the ammunition, as he says, to, to resist the, the trappings and the temptation of the culture that we find ourselves in. We are elect exiles. And starting in verse two, here's where Peter provides us these three truths about our God-given elect identity. I should encourage us while we're exiles here away from home. So let's read verse two. Then we're gonna walk through these three truths that relate back to being elect exiles. Also, as we read it, note Peter highlighting the Trinity's involvement in election. Verse two, they're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. They're elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Then Peter concludes his greeting with this prayer, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, three truths about our elect exile identity. Peter says his audience are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to means result. In other words, God the Father's election of individuals is a result of his foreknowing them from eternity past. They are elect exiles because God foreknew them. Now, what does this mean? Well, God is omniscient. He does know everything. He, he knows who will and won't believe. But knowing facts isn't actually what foreknowledge is getting at, interestingly. God's foreknowledge is more relational than factual. It's about God for loving individuals and not having to do anything with their future actions. Later in chapter 1, verse 20, Peter uses the same term when he writes, Jesus was foreknown. Maybe some of your translations say uh, chosen, the literal here is Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this speaks to God the Father's personal and special love that he had for his son, Jesus. Now, the New Testament word for known that's in foreknowledge is related to its Hebrew counterpart. And in the Hebrew, when referring to God, known is often in relation to God's special love for his people. Speaking to his disobedient people in Amos 3.2, God says to the prophet, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, this can't mean that God doesn't know about everybody else whom he has created personally. Therefore, no means you only have I specially loved. You only have I been in a unique relationship with. God the Father's knowledge, foreknowledge, is his sovereign determination to set his 
personal and special love on individuals, not based on anything they will or won't do, but based solely on his choice to love them. Because he foreknows, he elects. Because he foreloves, he chooses. One of the commentaries I was using in preparation is by a fellow, Juan Sanchez, and he had some moving words of application I wanted to share. He writes, Peter encouraged his readers with the doctrine of divine election and God the Father's foreknowledge because it reminded these Christians that their suffering did not mean God had forgotten them. We too have the tendency to believe that God is with us and blessing us when all is well, while wondering if God has somehow abandoned us when our world is falling apart. Regardless of how bad our circumstances may appear, God is sovereign, and he is the one who has known us intimately from before the foundation of the world. We can stand firm in the grace of God because the God who chooses us is the God who brings about the very salvation he offers. Living in exile is tough. But be encouraged. Your situation is not by chance. Your God-given elect identity is because God the Father chose to set his special love on you before the foundation of the world. And because it was before you did anything good or bad, his love on you is irrevocable. Indeed, take heart, the same love that chose you in eternity past is the same love that will carry you safely home to heaven. First truth about our elect identity is that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second truth, Peter says, is his audience are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So being an elect exile is first a result of God the Father's foreknowledge, but then secondarily it's a result of the sanctification of the Spirit of God. Now normally when we think of sanctification, we think of progressive sanctification. It's that process where the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. There is another way that the Bible talks about sanctification, and it is positional sanctification. Jerry Bridges describes positional sanctification like this. It's the decisive break with or separation from sin as a ruling power in the believer's life. It is a point in time changed produced in us by the Holy Spirit as he removes us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of Christ. Speaking about this positional sanctification in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul is encouraging struggling Christians, and he does so like this. You were washed, you were sanctified. There's that positional sanctification. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Peter reminds these people that they are elect exiles because in their conversion, the Holy Spirit marked them off, set them apart as God's holy elect exiles. 
by reminding us that we've been set apart by the Spirit for God, Peter wants us to appreciate that our identity as elect exiles means that we are to be distinctively different from the non-elect and culture around us. To be set apart means that you are to be distinctively different. Later in chapter 1 in verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and he's thinking of various places in Leviticus, you shall be holy because I am holy. Question. If a non-believing stranger came up to you was able to kind of pull back the curtains to get an intimate look on your life, would they see you as distinctively different because of your set-apartness? Would they see you as distinctively different in your character and conduct? Not talking about perfection. Talking about those who, because of God's grace, desire to make change in their life and are making change. It can't be merely talk of I want to, please forgive me, and then never making change. Are you distinctively different? Or would they open up the curtain intimately on your life and say, doesn't seem any different to me. Matthew Harmon, in his excellent book, I've, I've put this as a reference on the back of your sermon notes. Matthew Harmon says, it's a longer quote, it's all going to be on the screens. <clears throat> Those of us living in the West face an increasingly secularized culture that grows more hostile to God, his people, and his ways. As this trend continues, God's instructions to his exiled people will continue to take on increasing relevance to us. While we may never face such direct challenges to compromise faithful obedience to the Lord, we are daily faced with the temptation to compromise even in small matters of personal integrity. At the same time, the triumph of evil in the world around us can lead us to despair and question whether God will ever fulfill his promises to restore all things. Such despair can show itself in a deep-seated pessimism that constantly expects the worst to happen or in a cynical smugness that prides itself in being realistic about the world around us. Either way, it is an expression of unbelief for we serve a God who has promised not only to be with us, but ultimately to right every wrong. And he calls us to be a light in the midst of that darkness, distinguished by our faith in him and our unshakable confidence in his power and faithfulness. God the Spirit has marked us off, set us apart to be God's holy elect exiles. We are those who belong to a completely different kingdom and therefore, as a result, have allegiance to a different king. We should expect to be different and thought of as different. Now, it doesn't mean being intentionally weird or being a jerk, but we do need to appreciate that we've been set apart to be God's holy people. Is that you? 
is that, is that us? Are we a community where others could say, there's something different there? We're called to be as bright lights shining into the darkness. We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, but listen, our witness, our witness to our king and the kingdom we call home is at stake with our truly being distinct. Our witness is minimized if we look like everybody else. Who wants to be a part of that? But be encouraged. Oh, be encouraged, fellow elect exiles. The same spirit who sets you apart lives within you. He wants to empower you towards you being distinctively different. All right, second truth. Our identity as elect exiles is because we've been sanctified, set apart by the spirit of God. The third and final truth, Peter says, his audience are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter says that the purpose, the purpose for them being elect exiles is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, Peter again has Old Testament Israel on his mind with these two things, this, this obedience and especially and most certainly with the sprinkling of the blood. So we're not going to really understand this. I think if he just said for the obedience, I think we would have all said, yeah, that makes sense. And now you get the sprinkling of the blood and get the head scratcher here. The background here is Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. So we need to read that to appreciate what Peter's talking about. You can turn there if you want to. I'll also have it on the screens. But so Exodus, where, where are we at in history? <clears throat> God has freed his people from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. He has given them the law, which was meant to set them apart and make them distinct, distinct from the surrounding nations that they will find themselves in. Now they are at Mount Sinai, and at Exodus 24, Moses has just finished giving the law for the first time. Verse 5, And Moses sent young men, priests, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. There's, he read it again. And they said, in response to him reading it, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in, in, in accordance with all these words. And so in verses five through six, sacrificial blood is, is shed. It's sprinkled on the altar. In verse seven, the people pledge obedience to God. And this promised obedience lines up with the obedience that we see in our passage. And then in verse eight, still Exodus here, verse eight, Moses sprinkles blood on the People, the sprinkling of the animal blood lines up with a sprinkling of Christ's blood in our passage. The blood signifies the forgiveness and cleansing the people needed to be in the right with God. This covenant has two parts. There's a commitment to obedience and there's a shedding of blood and sprinkling it on the people for forgiveness. And Peter says, so it is with us. 
but with a better covenant. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you as he sprinkled it on them. And at the Passover meal with his disciples, echoing Moses' words, Jesus took the cup saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Unlike the old covenant, where the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin, nor empower the people to truly obey, the, the new covenant in Jesus' blood speaks a better word. In the new covenant, Jesus' blood truly does atone for sin. What's more, the, the law is now written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us is now within us, empowering us towards obedient Christ-likeness. Family, we're not only foreknown and set apart for the purpose of obedience, but we're also marked off by the forgiving blood of Jesus. The very Jesus whose perfect obedience is now ours by faith. Not only do we live in a fallen world, but there is still fallenness, sin that remains within us as well. But our identity as elect exiles means that we belong to a forgiven community where obedience to King Jesus is possible and where forgiveness when we sin against God or against each other is to be found in the blood of Jesus. To know that this is our purpose is to be encouraged to press on into our exile together, encouraging one another towards obedience, quick to remind one another of Christ's forgiveness. Let's finish where Peter finished. Peter closes his greeting with a prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The same grace that elected you is the same grace that Peter prays will be multiplied in abundance to you to empower you along the way of your exile. The, the same peace that you get to enjoy and experience as being God's chosen is the same peace that Peter prays would again would be multiplied in abundance that you would experience that while in your exile. Exile is tough. So may grace and peace be multiplied in abundance to us as we walk through this exile life together. But no family, there is a day coming when our exile will fully and finally cease. Either we, we die, we go home, or Christ returns. But until that day, Peter has given us three truths here about our identity that are meant to stir our hearts and encourage us as we pursue this exile life here away from home. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're elect exiles, in other words, because God the Father chose to love us before the foundation of the world. We're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is, 
God the Father set us apart as his holy people. And we're elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We're elect exiles bought with the blood of Jesus, the new and better covenant for the purpose of empowered obedience. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word applied to us many, many, many years later. Thank you for the grace that we get to profit from. I pray that you would help us to be a community of elect exiles, truly, that we would want to live this life together in this forgiven community together. Help us to be distinct in this world. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you. We want the name of Christ to be known and loved amongst the nations. And so help us to be that bright light that makes Jesus look good. We pray this in his name. Amen.